everybody, and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. In today's episode, we'll be talking about what's going down in the NBA and WNBA bubble. We will look into the NFL now that the season is up and rolling. We will also talk about the NCAA and what's happening with college football and what's going down since their season is all but completely rolling. And we'll have our best for last. Now, don't forget the show has a Twitter page at JTime Sports that covers breaking news and updates and things like that. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and welcome into the show. Now, we're going to start off today. We're talking about the NBA and what's going down in the NBA and the WNBA. But first, we're going to start with the NBA and what went down Wednesday night. The arrival of Tyler Hero. And by the arrival, I mean, this is the first time we've seen him really since high school explode for this level of production and level of scoring. Because he didn't do that at Kentucky. He never had a single 30-point game at Kentucky. And a lot of people question, could he score at the NBA level after sometimes struggling at the collegiate level? Question has been answered. 37 in a decisive game four of an Eastern Conference Finals to put your team up 3-1 with a chance to go to the NBA Finals. The question has been answered. Tyler Hero is a walking bucket. I mean, this kid's absolutely explosive. He's got three-point range. He loves shooting that jumper. He can attack the rim. And when he's on fire, there's nothing you can do to stop him. Similar to what we see Jamal Murray on the Denver Nuggets, who we'll talk about a little later. But the Heat went up 3-1. And what's weird about the Heat being up 3-1 is that the points are exactly tied in the four games. Each team has scored 441 points. And the fact that it's a not a 2-2 series, but a 3-1 series speaks to how the fact that points come in the right moments. I mean, if you look at it, Bam Adebayo doesn't block Jason Tatum. And instead, Tyler Hero misses a few shots last game. You can still be tied at 441, but it's 2-2. So that's just something to speak on. I think Eric Spolster is doing a little bit better job in coaching than Brad Stevens. Talent on talent, Boston's better. I mean, the best player on the floor, talent-wise, is Jason Tatum. Then Jimmy Butler. Then Jalen Brown. Then Bam Adebayo. Then it starts being going to come a run of Celtics. I think Gordon Hayward's better than anybody else that the Heat have, although Tyler Hero's making a case. I think Marcus Smart's better than most people on the Miami Heat. I think Ennis Cantor's offensive game is better than most people on the Miami Heat. And so when you look at it that way, it's just the scrap and the fight and the dogs and the mentality that the Heat are putting on the floor. You see when the Heat have a big game. You see they show in the press box every time. It's Pat Riley. Pat Riley, yeah, we know him from Showtime. We know him from Magic Johnson and all the up and down tempo and the beauty of Showtime. But speak to people in the NBA and listen to people from the NBA who was around when he went to the Knicks. And he said that was Pat Riley, that the slick back hair and the suits and all the up and down tempo was Showtime L.A. Pat Riley. He fed to the crowd and he let his point guard and Magic run the show. But when he went to the Knicks, that was Pat Riley. I even say that's who Pat Riley really wants to be. And you can see that when you look at how, you know, the Heat have evolved culture wise. They have a tough culture. They've always had a tough culture. When you look at Miami, 
when LeBron showed up, what do they want to do? Play defense. They wanted to fight. They wanted to scrap and they wanted to lock down as much as humanly possible when they play defense on people. That's why you had LeBron taking Derrick Rose in the fourth quarter. That's why you had Dwayne Wade switching on the guards when they started getting off and Chalmers and Cole couldn't do much to them because they were all about defense. He's built a culture in Miami. And although Miami is a sexy, it's a fun city, Pat Riley is not like that. He's a Nick. He scraps, he fights, he goes to war. Even those Lakers teams known for Showtime play good defense. They were one of the highest rated defensive teams every year because Pat Riley knew defense wins championships. And although he coined the term three-peat, those Lakers never got quite got to it. And actually, he's never been a part of a three-peat, even though he coined the phrase. But Pat Riley has ultimately built a great culture there. And you see it in their head coach and Eric Spolstra. They'll go man, then all of a sudden switch into a zone, which is a tactic Boston uses sometimes. But they'll switch into a zone, and Spolster is being started out in the film room and worked his way up through the organization. He undoubtedly knows the Heat culture in and out. He's one of the longest tenure coaches in the NBA. I believe it's Greg Popovich, Rick Carlisle, and then him, if memory serves me correctly, especially being in their last spots. And so when you look at it like that, it is very obvious why the Heat are controlling this series and it's on the bench and not players it is coaching now yes are the players knocking down the shots obviously hero went for 37 you've got kelly olenic doing his job jimmy butler scores when he needs to andre iguodala going Dragic is playing well duncan robinson and obviously bam out of bio so the heat's players are doing what they have to do as well but i think the advantage right now that makes it 3-1 instead of 2-2 or even 3-1 the other way is Eric Spolstra over Brad Stevens. And that just speaks to a little bit more of the NBA championship level experience that Spolstra had coaching the Miami Heat during the Heatles days with LeBron, D-Wade, and Bosh. Now Boston could very well be sitting here right, right now, like I said, of 3-1. They probably should be sitting here 2-2. Jason Tatum did not score a point in the first half. He finished the game with 28. So it's very impressive. If you just see his raw numbers, you're thinking, man, Tatum had a good night. They have had a good half of a night. He didn't score a point in the first half. That can't happen. You cannot have the best player on your team, a guy who's trying to become an elevated to superstar status, which is when you usually make your bones in the playoffs, not score a point in the first half. Look, that's very uncharacteristic of Jason Tatum. He was over six. He couldn't throw a brick in the ocean standing in a boat. And Marcus Smart couldn't all night. So when you've got a guy who you've been depending on lately and Marcus Smart to get you anywhere from 13 to 18 or more points, and Tatum obviously is supposed to get you 28, but it's 14 either half or 10 and 18. He's not supposed to be something where he goes zero and then gets incredibly hot in the second half and goes for 28 because usually it's too little too late. Now, Boston also shot themselves on the foot with seven fourth quarter turnovers. Miami didn't have one. And so when you look at the game being so close at the end and you turn the ball over seven times in the fourth quarter and the team you're playing doesn't, you're probably going to lose because that's the kind of things that tip the scales back towards the other team having a seven turnover advantage in the fourth quarter. Now, Miami is not going to surrender a 3-1 lead. The Miami Heat are not the Los Angeles Clippers. They're not the Utah Jazz. Like I said earlier, they have a culture of winning and of finishing things off. Jimmy Butler is the perfect number one for this team because he 
is a in the flow offensive player. He's not a ball dominant player. He's not a LeBron. He's not a Harden. He's not a prime Dwayne Wade where they're ball dominant people on the ball. The ball can still hop around, but everybody's still moving. If Jimmy Butler, like he said in the post game interview, if it's Heroes Night, it's Heroes Night. If it's Bam's Night, if it's Duncan's Night, if it's Drogic's Night, that's just who they're going to score through. That's who they're going to play through. They don't necessarily have to, man. Jimmy Butler's off. We got to keep going to Jimmy Butler and keep running the show through him because he is what our offense is built around. Most teams, especially when they come this late, has a guy that's built around. Boston's built around Tatum. Tatum was off and Boston was struggling. Now they got contributions and help from Miami struggling, but Miami had a pretty decent shooting first half and played well like they were supposed to in the first half. The game was over at halftime because Tatum not being able to score at all really put a damper on what Boston can do, only mustering 44 points in the first half. Now, I think that Boston's going to win game six. They're going to throw one last haymaker at Miami, and Miami will finish it off in six and advance to the first NBA Finals since 2014, which coincidentally is the last time that LeBron James suited up for the Miami Heat franchise. Now, speaking of LeBron James, he has his own fire to quell. The Lakers and the Nuggets had an absolute battle in game three. The Lakers did not come out with the energy I expected. I expected the Lakers to come out knowing Denver has come back 3-1 twice in this playoffs already. I expect them LA to come out and treat them like they were down 2-0. Like they had to just scrap and fight and put the Nuggets down 3-0. And maybe that finally breaks their spirit. Maybe Jamal Murray finally packs his bags. Maybe Jokic finally just goes, okay, we'll be back next year. But that didn't happen. The others went off for the Nuggets. Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr. played a good game. Murray and Jokic obviously did their thing. And the Nuggets won the game. The Lakers got out-rebounded by 19, if memory serves me correctly. That can't happen. Anthony Davis didn't get a rebound until the fourth quarter. AD, JaVale, and Dwight combined for four rebounds. To put that in context, Jamal Murray out-rebounded all of them put together. That cannot happen. I mean, that was a play where Jamal Murray gets the ball off the glass, goes and dunks. I mean, just fairly uncontested. And that can't happen if you're trying to be a championship team. Now, even if the Lakers win game four, which I expect they would, you put the Nuggets in a very familiar spot, down 3-1. This time, instead of having the right to play another team, they're having the right at an NBA Finals berth. If you don't think they were motivated to come back from 3-1 before, they're going to be very motivated to come back from 3-1 this time. And to say that in a single playoff run, they came back from 3-1 three times, dispatching of Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James along the way. So the Lakers are going to have to dominate the Nuggets tonight physically. They can't get out rebounded by 19. But the Nuggets have all the confidence in the world as well they should. You saw Jamal Murray hitting the big three at the end of the game, shimmying down the court a la Steph Curry. You saw Jokic, very hyped. Jeremy Grant found his stroke. Monte Morris was looking like he was ready to play ball. And the Nuggets are ready to go. Mike Malone has those guys scrapping, have them playing good defense. I mean, the Lakers rank first in the playoffs in deflections. The Nuggets rank two in defensive deflections. So they're getting their hands on balls when they're in the air. And they are prepared to play good defense. They're prepared to rebound and hustle and fight the Lakers because they know if they can get this thing to 2-2, it's not like, okay, we're going back to L.A. for game five. So we just got to maybe we can steal one, win game six, and then 
put all the marbles on the center of the floor for game seven, you're in a bubble. There's no home court advantage. Yeah, you may change what arena your bus drives to, but there's still no crowd. I mean, there's the virtual crowd, but no real crowd. There's still no travel. There's nothing of the usual. For instance, Denver would be getting the altitude advantage right now. That's not happening. But in LA, you would get your Laker crowd, your Laker faithful, and that's not happening. So I think the Lakers win tonight. I think the Lakers win. I think that they'll win by seven to 10 points. They made a monstrous comeback at the end of game three. I mean, they played bad, horrible. And then for like a, over a five minute stretch, they made a massive run and had it to a LeBron James step back three that he missed to the left. That if that goes in, it's a tie ball game. And I think the Lakers even win game three. But instead he missed it. And so they can never get close enough to have another opportunity like that again. But tonight I expect the bounce back Anthony Davis game. I expect the LeBron foot on their next kind of game. You know, nothing like 45, 15, and 5 in Boston in game six. But I do expect maybe a 30-point triple-double, you know, 33, 10, and 11. Anthony Davis goes for another 30, and the Lakers win this game fairly comfortably to put a commanding lead on the series. And they'll go 3-1. But again, against the Denver Nuggets, that is not something that is promised to hold up. Not by any means on the planet. And will that hold up? Ask Utah and ask the Clippers. Both of them had Denver down 3-1. Both of them are currently at home watching the bubble. Or not watching the bubble. Probably too painful to look at. But we will have a recap of the Nuggets and Lakers in best for last. Alright, so switching to a little NBA news. So what's happening right now is the Philadelphia coaching search along with a few other coaching searches. So the Indiana Pacers, the New Orleans Pelicans, the Oklahoma City Thunder, along with the Philadelphia 76ers, still do not have a coach. No one name that is missing that used to be on the list, the Chicago Bulls, as they hired Billy Donovan, who used to be the coach of Oklahoma City, before mutually agreeing that it wasn't a good fit for him anymore and he was moving on to a different location. That location ultimately was the Chicago Bulls, whose best player is Zach Levine, who found out he was getting a new coach, or rather found out who his new coach was, while live streaming Warzone. He found out through an alert like the rest of us. I don't know if it was a Wolves bomb, I don't know if he found out through the Sports Center alert, Bleacher Report, whatever. But he found out about his own team through an alert on his phone while playing Warzone. And basically was talking to people in the party that he was in about, yeah, we got Billy Donovan, who was a good coach of Oklahoma City. I mean, he was trying to quickly react to this because people I know was asking about him in his party chat and who he was talking to. So that's not the best way to handle it, especially when there's been rumors flying everywhere that Zach Levine wants out of Chicago and is looking to land in a championship ready situation a la Lakers, a la Nets, a la Sixers for the right package. And so not alerting him and clearly not consulting him on the hiring move may not have been the best choice if you want to keep Zach Levine around. But Billy Donovan, like Levine said, is a good coach. Obviously, you saw what he did in Oklahoma City with Chris Paul, Shai Gillis Alexander, Stephen Adams, and the rest of that crew, Danilo Gallinari. And so I'm interested to see what Billy Donovan does with Chicago. I honestly didn't think he would go to a rebuilding situation. Or if he did, he would go with a guaranteed young star like New Orleans 
has with Zion Williamson, or he would go to something like the 76ers where they're ready to win today. He's got to polish it up, clean it up a little bit, and they'll be ready to roll. But ultimately, he decides to go to Chicago. Now, a rumor swirling around Philly, around the Philly camp and coming out of Philly, is that the Sixers are interested in Mike D'Antoni for the purpose of luring Harden to the Sixers. Now, you're probably thinking James Harden's on the contract. He's not even a free agent for another couple years. You'd be right. So was Paul George. So was Anthony Davis. Paul George had three years left when he decided to opt out and get out of Oklahoma City to get to the Clippers. They traded him for a boatload of picks, but they traded him. Now, in the terms of Anthony Davis, he had a year left and he got out for a big package to the Lakers. Now, that begs two questions. Does James Harden love D'Antoni enough to uproot out of Houston and go to Philadelphia, which does not have the nightlife that James Harden has gotten very, very accustomed to in Houston? And does Philly and Elden Brand, who's the GM of Philly, want to offer up the massive package? I know it's gonna be a monstrous package which either includes Embiid or Simmons to the Rockets in exchange for James Harden to get Harden to go east. Now for Harden, if he decides to go east, he's the best guard in the east. He's the best player in the east. I mean, you debate him and Giannis. He immediately becomes probably all NBA because he's in the east and stack his numbers. And he's a guaranteed all-star starter. For Dan Tony, he gets a guy who he can run as his point man in the system. I assume he would probably trade Embiid, considering Embiid's a little bigger, or he trades Simmons and let Simmons go do his own thing in Houston with whoever becomes the new coach of Houston, which is also a spot still open that I failed to mention earlier. Honestly, I don't see that holding much weight. Um, I haven't heard a lot about it from many sources that I trust. Uh, it was one of those off-the-wall reports that was getting a lot of traction. Bleacher Report was on it, but like I said, I hadn't heard it from many sources that I trust. Now, D'Antoni and Philly seems like an odd fit due to the fact of there's Embiid and Simmons. Neither one are great shooters, and Embiid's a true center. We just saw he did to Houston. Him and Darren Morey shipped the only true center they had on the roster out in Clint Capella and turned Tyson Chandler into the world's largest cheerleader. So I'm not sure him and MB would work at all. Although he had Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire in the 2000s for Phoenix and they were very close to making an NBA Finals. So maybe they can do a new age Simmons and MB becomes a new age Stoudemire and Nash. But that'd be very interesting to watch. And now we're going to shift to quickly to the WNBA. So I made a prediction that the Sparks were going to be in the WNBA finals. And that was wrong. Um, The Sparks were summarily dismissed. And now we have Minnesota versus Seattle and Las Vegas versus Connecticut. I would take Seattle and Las Vegas to meet in the WNBA finals due to the fact of they're probably the two most talented teams in the league. Obviously, Las Vegas has MVP Asia Wilson along with Angel McCautry with Bill Lambert as their coach. That's a program he's building over there very well now. And Seattle with Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and the rest of that crew. They're arguably could have won the title last year. They didn't have two massive injuries to both of their stars. And so that's going to be an absolute war in the WNBA finals. 
but I am predicting the Aces and the Storm to meet in the finals. And I will probably get my prediction on that next week. I can't seem to just flat out pick a winner here. I waffle back and forth. You know, I say, man, Stewie can go ballistic. We've seen it, but so can Asian Angel. So it'll be something we'll have to definitely keep our eye on there. But up next, we're going to now shift to the NFL and talk about what's going down there. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to shift to the NFL. But before I go, before I leave the NBA, I just want to remind everybody we will have a recap of Lakers Nuggets along with the Thursday night football game and best for last. So stick around for that. But back to the NFL. Now, week two was brutal. Bloody Sunday at its finest. We had seven ACL tears, including to some of those stars like Nick Bosa's done for the year, Saquon Barkley's done for the year. The 49ers were absolutely decimated as they not only lost Nick Bosa, they lost Solomon Thomas for the year, Jimmy Garoppolo for at least a week, possibly two. They lost both running backs for a couple of weeks. The Eagles were hit hard. Several NFL teams were hit hard. The Giants, any chance of them winning five or six games this year and really building in the Joe Judge era went out of the window the second Saquon Barkley's knee buckle. It was a rough time for everyone in the NFL. Players, fans, fantasy owners, actual owners, coaches to watch so many people that we root for every Sunday and we love to read about every single article that comes out on them from the local team reporters through the week just to see these guys injured. And um, do I think preseason had an effect or the lack thereof of a preseason? No. And what I mean by this is I don't think the lack of preseason games affected it. I think the lack of a normal style training camp affected it. You didn't have the usual ramp up period because let's be honest, the Rams hadn't played their starters for years in the preseason haven't done it last year a lot of the people followed the trend and didn't play their star players in the preseason games now did they play in the joint practices absolutely did they have their regular training camps absolutely so what i think we need to go to in terms of a league is that get rid of the preseason games they don't matter they they, they just don't matter they're not helping anybody except for the guys you know on the bottom of the roster so if you want to keep two games for those situational guys that's fine, but you don't need four. But I think instead we should shift to a more of a scrimmage style situation. So we saw on Hard Knocks how the Rams and the Chargers both had scrimmages inside of SoFi. And the more we see it, the more we see intra-squad scrimmages because that's the only live action you got from your roster because you weren't able to see them on the field in preseason action in terms of games and game situations. So I think they need to instead shift to scrimmages where you know they have joint practices as is they practice against each other three or four days out of the week and then play on sunday for the preseason game instead we should go to a practice you know scrimmage style schedule where the chargers and the rams they're in a building they scrimmage week one you scrimmage somebody really close to you week one so like for instance the thursday night game is jacksonville and miami well i mean tampa's in between them so maybe jacksonville and tampa Every week one, they scrimmage against each other. And so it's not an official game, but you invite fans out. It's like a fan event. You invite fans out, you host two scrimmages, they host two scrimmages. And instead of being an official game when you charge $100 for a pretty decent seat, 
maybe you charge $10 or maybe it's even free. If you do it in the daytime, you don't have to run lights or anything like that for most of the things in the NFL unless you go inside, in which case you can use it as a fan appreciation event, even if it's for something only for season ticket holders. And so I think that'll be something that they could do and look forward to to try and avoid the rash of injuries that happened last Sunday. The games, minus the injuries, were spectacular. You saw Tom Brady get on a little bit of chemistry with the Bucks. He played well. The Sunday night game was absolutely amazing. Pins and needles all the way through. Cam Newton with his best passing performance since his first two games of his rookie season. He's absolutely on a tear. Russell Wilson is balling right now. He has nine touchdowns to 11 incompletions. He is my runaway favorite right now for the MVP. And it is basically not even close. He's running away with it. I mean, Patrick Mahomes struggled versus the Chargers. Lamar Jackson is Lamar Jackson. However, you know, voter fatigue, back-to-back MVPs rarely happen in the NFL. And so I think it's Russell Wilson's year to lose it at this point. He's rolling. Like I said, nine touchdowns, 11 incompletions, no interceptions, and his team is currently 2-0. The Eagles are struggling. They are struggling big time. I mean, we've got the audio announcer with fake boos when Carson Wentz does a bad play. They're hurting injury-wise. It's not a good year for the Eagles. The only good news for them is Dallas should be 2-0. Atlanta, I, I, I just can't get past what Atlanta did, honestly. Not recovering an onside kick because you didn't know the rule that you could touch it before 10 yards is honestly mind-blowing. Someone should have got fired. The whole staff should have got fired. I would have fired everybody if I was... Arthur Blank, that's a fireable offense in and of itself. However, he didn't fire anybody. The special teams coach took blame for it in the media. So, hey, Arthur Blank, you are a bigger man than me, sir. But back to the division itself, the Cowboys are one and one. They played, like I said, a rough game versus Atlanta. Should have lost. Atlanta choked it back to them. The Washington football team is one and one. The Giants are 0-2, and the Eagles are 0-2. So, good news, Eagles. You're a game out of first. And that's something you can hang your hat on right now because, you know, you win next week. Dallas has to play Seattle. Washington's not very good. And the Giants doesn't have anybody on offense anymore. So you're in a four-way top first, or three-way top first, rather. So you're back in the driver's seat in the division. So the Eagles can easily turn that season around. The Rams look good. Sean McVay is torturing people right now with his use of misdirection. He's used to personnel packages. He's used of alignment. He's torturing people. The boy genius has figured it back out, and he's absolutely rolling right now. Um, biggest news of the week was the Tyrod Taylor incident. So, Chiefs Chargers, you know, you're expecting Tyrod Taylor versus Mahomes. Tyrod Taylor being a pretty good NFL quarterback, but at this point has become a bridge guy. He was the bridge to Josh Allen. He was the bridge to Baker Mayfield. He's currently the bridge to Justin Herbert. Well, Justin Herbert runs on the field. Everybody looks around shocked. People are tweeting out the best reporters, Ian Rappaport, Adam Schefter. Why is Justin Herbert on the field? What's what's happening? Herbert's going to start. What's going on? Well, it turns out that Tyrod Taylor was complaining of a chest injury and went to the hospital and was released. Okay, odd chest injury. Could have been some nervous panic attack or something. Nobody knows. And then it comes out that the team doctor for the Chargers accidentally punctured 
Tyrod Taylor's lung while giving him an injection for pain in his rib. And that is why he went to the hospital because he had a punctured lung. I've never heard of that in my life. I've never heard of a team doctor basically causing me worse injury trying to fix a previous injury. I mean, that's just all kinds of medical malpractice. The NFLPA's legal team is gathering facts, and I'm sure that they will be action either against the team, the doctor, or both. I'm not quite sure if Tyrod Taylor can sue the doctor independently, sue the league, sue the team, or any of that nature for a medical malpractice. I'm not sure what's in his contract or in his legal rights through collective bargaining. However, I will be shocked if that team doctor is not reprimanded, if, if not fired, or loses his medical license. I mean, he definitely put a guy's career in danger and life because now Tyrod Taylor is being told he shouldn't play indefinitely. It's not a situation where, oh, you know, he punctured it, that sucks, but you'll be back in a week or two or four or six. He has no idea. He's just being told he cannot play indefinitely until the injury is healed, which means the Justin Herbert era in Los Angeles for the Chargers is underway tentatively. Coach Lynn has been very firm in saying that when Tyrod Taylor becomes 100% healthy, he's a starting quarterback. Now, I'm not sure if that is to temper expectations. Like if Herbert goes out there, because he played pretty well against the Chiefs. He played pretty well against the Chiefs. If Herbert goes out there and doesn't perform at his best, is that a way to temper expectations and say, see, this is why Tyrod should be the guy? Or is that a way to instill confidence in Tyrod to work his way back? Because if Herbert plays well, then you can go, hey, you know, it's kind of hard for me to pull him out of the seat. Similar to what Belichick did with Bledsoe and Brady. Bledsoe was the starter, got hurt. Brady was playing well. Belichick didn't throw Bledsoe back in the fire because the team had started to believe in Brady. So I feel like if Herbert begins to play well, begins to play really well, or even continues his level of play, it is going to be hard to look at the other 52 men in the locker room, 51 men in the locker room and go, yeah, Tyrod's the better option. If Herbert, if Tyrod's out, you know, five weeks, Herbert goes four and one, it's going to be hard for you to put Tyrod back in the situation. It's going to be hard to sell that to your fan base, to your team, to your organization, especially if you do it and Tyrod comes out and struggles and you even lose. And so I think Coach Lynn is in a win-win situation. Either he looks like a smart coach and he said Tyrod should be the starter because Herbert's not ready. Or he looks like a good coach and sticks with Herbert if Herbert starts to roll. But so that is the news for the week. We've seen some free agent signings, obviously, due to injuries and teams starting to reel. I do want to call for one coach's job, and that is Adam Gates of the New York Jets. He needs to be relieved of his duties in New York before he ruins Sam Donald's career further. That team is severely under-talented. He has final personnel control, or he has a lot of influence on personnel. He's part of the reason. And the people he doesn't like, and the people he doesn't get along with, and it's report he doesn't get along with, are his most talented players. I.e. Jamal Adams got out of town because of him. He does not like Le'Veon Bell. They've always had a strife. Neither one of them are saying that they do. However, it's always reported that they do, so it's coming from somewhere. And he is going to ruin Sam Donald's career. Ryan Tannehill was summarily booed out of Miami. He gets into a better situation in Tennessee with Mike Vrabel, and he signs a pretty good contract and is leading the Tennessee Titans almost to the Super Bowl. He, in my opinion, Sam Darnold is more talented than Ryan Tannehill. Please, please, New York Jets, remove Adam Gase. Because what you don't want to happen is Adam Gase gets Trevor Lawrence. 
or Justin Fields because both New York programs stink. And I think that it would be hard for the Giants and the Jets to pass up on Fields or Lawrence if they're at one and two. So you don't want Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields being infected by Adam Gase and his lack of honesty at this point, I think, ability to lead an NFL franchise. But right now we're going to shift to Jack's pack. Little bit of a down week this week. We did have a positive record though. We went three and two, which brings our total to six, three, and one. So right now I would be more than capable of being a professional gambler because I'm at a 60% win rate. But this week's pack of five, we've got Tennessee minus two and a half versus Minnesota. The way the Vikings played last week, I'm gonna go Tennessee there, swallow the two and a half to win about more than a field goal. You have Arizona versus Detroit. Kyler Murray is absolutely rolling. He's my dark horse MVP candidate. If Russell Wilson falls off at all, I think Kyler has a chance at it. And they have five and a half point favorites versus Detroit. I would take Arizona in that game to win by more than six. When there's next game is Packers plus three versus the Saints. It's Aaron Rodgers. The Saints are reeling. I'm not quite sure what they have defensively or offensively for that matter. And the way Green Bay is rolling, they have the best offense in NFL history through the first two games. I would go Packers plus three to just win the game flat out outright. The Bucks, led by Brady, Mike Evans, and the rest of the crew, getting Chris Godwin back this week, are six-point favorites versus the Denver Broncos, who are without their quarterback in Drew Locke. And because of that, even though it's a road game for the Bucks, I would take the Bucks minus six over Denver to win by more than a touchdown. And the Colts are 11 and a half point favorite over those aforementioned Jets. I am purely doing this because the last time I went with the Colts in a big favorite, they let me down with the Jacksonville Jaguars, although Gardner Minshew was rolling. And the Jets, I just, 11 and a half is too big of a number to not bet against. And so I would take the Jets to lose this game, clearly lose this game, but lose it by less than 11 points. I just can't see a team. I can't pick a team to lose by more than 12 points in a football game. But now for the Thursday night matchup, it is the beard versus the mustache. It is the Miami Dolphins led by Ryan Fitzmagic versus Gardner Minshew Mania and the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's going to be a very hotly contested game. It's the battle of Florida. It's almost like a recruiting battle in essence, and they're going to go at it. I going to lean here towards the Jacksonville Jaguars who will play themselves out of the Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields situation. Now, this could be a good thing for Jacksonville. Jacksonville may end up winning in six or seven games this year, which means they're out of Trey Lance, they're out of Justin Fields, they're out of Trevor Lawrence. But if they win six or seven games, even eight games, they might win this division. Houston's not very talented. Indianapolis has Phillip Rivers, who they've already beat. And the only person outside of that is Tennessee, who, again, always made the Super Bowl last year, but they still have Ryan Tanner here at quarterback, who's good, not great. And that's all they would have to contend with the top of the division would be Tennessee. But if Gardner Minshew wins his division, you go all in on Minshew. He doesn't have a big contract at all. You start loading up the talent, trying to get as many people as you can to Jacksonville, and to try and build around Minshew to go further. Now, that's a double-edged sword. They did this with Blake Bortles. Remember Bortles? Came in, Fournette, Shark, Saxonville with Ramsey and Calais Campbell and that crew. They were about a quarter and a half 
from going to the Super Bowl. And then Tom Brady started doing Tom Brady-like things. And ultimately, Brady goes to the Super Bowl and gets another ring. But they went all in with Blake Bortles. Who did they pass up on? Several. And I do mean several. High-level NFL starting quarterbacks because they went all in on trying to surround Blake Bortles with as much talent as they humanly can. Now, from an NFL marketing standpoint, you do not want Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields or Trey Lance in Jacksonville. That is a very, very, very small market, cheap owner, not a lot of talented on the team. You do not want one of those superstar quarterbacks, future superstar quarterbacks on Jacksonville from an NFL marketing standpoint. I mean, they play two or three of their games a year in a different continent. So you don't want that to happen. And Jacksonville may just play themselves out of that spot. But... I'll be very interested to watch it and to see how that goes. Remember, this Jack's pack so far with 6-3-1. So we're going to hopefully keep this train rolling this week. Again, we will have the best for last recap of the Thursday night game along with Lakers Nuggets. And up next, we're going to shift to a little bit of breaking news inside the NCAA and what's going down with their football season this year. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And we have a little bit of breaking news into the show. So the Pac-12 will be returning to college football. They announced that they will be resuming all winter sports, basketball, and football, and they will begin the football season a seven-game slate on the weekend of November 6th. Now that's big. Because they went only seven games, they still have an outside chance of making the college football playoff if they have a dominant 7-0 competitive team. So if USC juggernauts the conference and goes 7-0, beats everybody by 20-plus points, they'll have a case. Because do I think they'll be five undefeated conference champions? No, I do not think that at all. Not even in the slightest. I don't think they'll be more than two. Clemson undefeated, I can see that. And maybe Oklahoma gets out of the Big 12 undefeated. But I don't think the Big 10 champion is going to be undefeated. Although you can say Ohio State has a shot. And I for sure am 95% confident that the SEC will not have a single undefeated team this season. And so that'll give a dominant Pac-12 champion an outside chance at the playoff. Now, my case is officially made. There should be a commissioner of college football. This was an absolute debacle from start to finish. And I get it. I completely get it. Don't get me wrong. I understand the way politics and money works at collegiate universities. And when certain people in power has a stance, you as an athletic department tend to follow that stance if you want the money to keep coming, if you know what I mean. So they made a decision based on what the information they were getting. They can say what they want about medical information. The medical information that they claim to have was not there. It never was there and they can never prove it was there. They were afraid of lawsuits, rightfully so. And they were following the lead of people in power. Now, college football this season is an absolute mess. It's a mess. You've got the hardest conference in the world the SEC playing a 10 game conference schedule where they're going to beat on each other for 10 games. You've got the ACC playing a 10 plus one 
in which they're gonna go at each other for 10 games, even throwing Notre Dame in there for a year, who's wearing the ACC patch, which is the weirdest thing on the planet. Notre Dame's officially in a conference for the first time in this program history. And as of now, the only year to ever happen. So seeing Notre Dame with the ACC logo on their field and the patch on their jersey is just the weirdest thing on the planet. The second hardest conference in the Big Ten, they're playing an eight-gamer. They're starting later, and they're going to beat on each other. And then the Pac-12 gets the luxury of a seven-game season, waiting to see how protocols work and everything like that. And then you've got the Big 12, who's already started their season, along with the ACC, already going to war with each other. And so you've got all five conferences doing different things. Then they're all going to buy and complain and want a spot in the college football playoff to get the extra revenue when you're not playing on the same level playing field. I mean, the SEC comes back this weekend. You don't get the Big 10 until the end of next month. And you don't get the Pac-12 until November 6th. So it's just everybody's all over the place. There's no real consistency. There's no real leadership between the conferences. And there needs to be a commissioner of college football to make these decisions for everyone. So, for instance, if the commissioner decided that, hey, I got the medical information under advisement, I'm going to cancel college football for a year. And instead, we'll just play it next year. We might play a spring season or something like that. Okay, fine. Cool. Great. And then he gives more information. He says, hey, we're going to revamp it all for October 14th weekend. We're just going to go play football then. Perfect. Amazing. Let's do that. But everybody's on the same playing field. It's already a problem with scheduling and travel and all these other different restrictions between the conferences that aren't the same. So now you've got literally some teams playing 10, some teams playing 11, some teams playing 8, some teams playing 7. It's just all over the place. And in the end, they're going to all want to vie for the same goal of the college football playoff. But, hey, it's more football back. I am loving it. You even got to opt in. Rondell Moore, who was a star receiver for the Purdue Boilermakers, decided to opt back in today. Being Thursday, he decided to opt back in into his season. And so we got another star in college football coming back. Now, obviously, Jamar Chase at LSU decided to opt out. And so Chase is the biggest star and probably the highest draft pick to opt out because Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and all those guys are playing football. And so it is great to have college football back. We will now have all five power conferences on the field by November 6th. And that is going to be great to watch to have a full slate of games starting November 6th, Saturday. And up next, we will have our best for last, which will be a recap of Lakers Nuggets and the Thursday night football game between the Dolphins and the Jaguars. Alrighty guys, and we are back with our best for last, in which we'll do a recap of all of Thursday night's action. Now, we have football back, obviously, with Jacksonville and Miami, and we had game four of the Western Conference Finals with the Lakers and the Nuggets. And we're gonna start off with football. So, my prediction was wrong. I rode the Minshew Mania just a hair bit too long there, and Gardner Minshew turned back. Welcome to Gardner Minshew. And conveniently, he ran into a buzzsaw named Ryan Fitzmagic. Fitzmagic was back. At one point, he was approaching the record for completions in a row. And he got 21, and the record was 25 over the span of at any point. Obviously, Ryan Fitzpatrick didn't go 21 to 21. He went 9 
in a row to end the game last week. And he had 11 in a row to start the game this week. He was very efficient. Nothing deep, nothing cheap, but at a very good point where he was striking all across the field and had Miami fully in control of that game. Jacksonville, you're, you're in a good spot here. You realize quickly Gardner Minshew, hopefully you realize that Gardner Minshew is not the future of your franchise. And being one and two, you're still in play for a top four pick, top five pick, which is Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance range to truly get your franchise quarterback for the first time in a decade, at least. Maybe since Byron Leftwich left your franchise, would you be looking for a and landing a franchise quarterback in the NFL draft if you secure a top five draft pick? Because if you would have won tonight, you would have gone down the path, like I described earlier, of maybe winning up to seven or eight games and knocking yourself out of a top pick and landing into a Blake Bortles situation where you are resigned to trying to elevate a lower mid-level quarterback to try and elevate him to a championship level situation. Good news, Jacksonville, you lost. Not the best news for Gardner Minshew or Doug Marone, anybody else on the Jacksonville Jaguars currently, at least for the next few months. But mid-April, late May, depending on if they have to move the draft, you'll land a top quarterback and your franchise will be turned around from that day forward. In regards to Miami, you have nothing to lose. I mean, winning that game obviously helps the culture with Brian Flores, what he's trying to build. It also buys Ryan Fitzpatrick another week, at least. Whatever the plan was originally for two to come on the field, if it was eight weeks, it becomes nine. Because when you win a game, you kind of push the plan down the road, especially the way Ryan Fitzpatrick played that game. The Dolphins were in total control start to finish. Jacksonville did allow some fans, but obviously not being a packed crowd really negates any home field advantage or anything of the sort. And so Jacksonville was thoroughly outmatched and the more talented team in Miami shone through. Whether it was mistakes, whether it was Cam Robinson getting ejected, Gardner Minshew throwing an interception, Jacksonville, Jacksonville did. And so Miami won the game and my prediction was wrong. Luckily for me, it was not in my Jacks pack. I do not do Thursday night games. They're just far too, too unpredictable as we just seen. Even I probably should have seen that one coming. But they are just far too unpredictable for Jack's pack. But now we're going to shift to the much more exciting game, which was Lakers and Nuggets. There's playoff Rondo. I do have to stop saying playoff Jamal now. I mean, we have playoff LeBron. And we were building a playoff Anthony Davis resume until up until recently when he decided rebounding wasn't important. That's neither here nor there. I think we have to have a playoff Jamal or at least... Yeah, playoff Jamal. I mean, you kind of got no choice there. He's making up and under Jordan-esque layups around LeBron. He did a 360 left-handed push flip thing. I don't, I don't even know what to quite to call it. It swishes nothing but net with his offhand spinning away from the goal over somebody. That was absolutely tremendous. And then he's just controlling the flow of the game. Didn't get his usual big night from Jokic because of foul trouble. Jokic was off and on in foul trouble. And when a big gets in foul trouble, he's worried about, okay, I have to play a little bit softer on defense because I don't want to pick up a cheap foul, go to the bench, now I'm out. It affects his offensive performance because you don't want to take a hard step to the lane, draw a charge. That's the foul you were trying to avoid. You don't want to set the screen maybe a little bit harder than normal. That's the foul you were trying to avoid. So it takes a big like Jokic out of the equation a little bit when he's worried about picking up an extra foul and going to the bench. Huge knife from Anthony Davis. Started out early, knocking down 12, 
and the points in a row. I mean, on fire. He nails his first seven shots, and he came out very, very aggressive. A little bit of a passive game for LeBron. Slightly shocking there. I thought that he would maybe try to do the foot on the neck game, as I said earlier. I said the Lakers would have a bigger lead and get dropped down late, end up being a small lead and spread out a little bit late. So I was a little bit off on that one, but I thought LeBron would come out a lot more aggressive, and it turns out he did not. Now, the Nuggets are the comeback kids, and they've done 3-1 twice, and oh look, the series is now 3-1. So maybe the Nuggets fans are thinking we got right where we want them, we've got them where we want them to be, now we're going to win three straight advance to play whoever wins out of the Celtics and the Heat for the NBA championship. Game five has to be the foot on the neck game. You cannot let this go to game six because now it gets interesting. Now it is your one hot shooting night in game six from the Nuggets to being in a game seven. And you do not want Jamal Murray and Jokic in their third game seven of this season. Their fifth game seven of their young careers with a chance to go to the NBA finals for the first time in a very long time, if ever, for the franchise. And so that'll be interesting to watch in game five. I expect they dominate two of the force from LeBron to end the series and get ready for the NBA Finals, his 10th one of his career, and the first for Anthony Davis. But that'll wrap up today's show. It was a fun one. It was a blast. I thoroughly enjoy doing these right after Best for Last, where it's a recap of the game's nights, because it's just great for me. It's my quick thought reaction. I usually recording this 10 15 minutes after the games go off so it is pretty quick reactions for me and uh pretty active my brain started running through the plays and running through the action that i saw but all in all it was a great show remember you can find it on spotify and apple Podcasts, along with following the twitter at jtime sports for show updates breaking news on actual sports and it covers all kind of different things that goes on throughout the day, really, and night of sports and keeps you updated as humanly possible all in one place. But you guys have a great rest of your day. And this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.